Welcome to the Old Galway Diary podcast. Each week, Tom Kenny and I, Ronnie O'Gorman, write a column in the Galway Advertiser. Before it goes to press, we contact each other and share what is filling the page that particular week. This podcast is that conversation. And I would add, we enjoy talking to you and would appreciate if you would give us a rate and review on the Apple Podcast app. Hi, Tom. Good morning to you on this beautiful summer's day. My goodness, we're yes. lucky. We're lucky. Hello, Ronnie. We are indeed. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I think we're also lucky to get a slight sea breeze as well. It's getting very hot. Yes. Easy, apparently. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I yeah. think, yeah. I agree. Tom, listen, I followed your, some of your guidance last week and I walked out again to the lighthouse on Mutton Island. And I think the city council are missing a trick here because I, I walked around as much as I could and looked through the gates as much as I could. The lighthouse itself, the house and the actual tower and the light is a very interesting Victoria building. And it should be taken in as part of the Galway Museum, I think, or something like that. And somehow the tanks could be, you know, cordoned off and people should be encouraged to look at this beautiful Victorian building that that, that served Galway all those years. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good thought. I agree. Um, now, it it wouldn't be the most convenient of it because there can't be much inside the lighthouse except a kind of a revolving staircase going up. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine that took up a lot. There may have been a bedroom or, well, I presume there were because although there were, there was a house attached to it. So yes. I that's what I'm talking the living about. Quarters. Yes. Yeah. But anyway, you know, the, yeah. the fishery tower. That's right. Is a very sm nice, small little museum. And, uh, yeah. I agree. Why, why not add to it? Yeah, I know because it was such an important part of the, you know, coastal approach to the to oh, the yeah. town of Galway. You know, yeah, most certainly, yeah, yeah. Anyway, as you said, I walked back towards the city, and really, I could feel the breeze on a beautiful, beautiful evening, and uh, it is a wonderful walk. We're really blessed to have that walk. It's just beautiful, and a lot of people are doing the walk anyway. I wasn't alone. I assure you, there were loads of people there enjoying the walk. Yeah, oh, I think so, but I. Like, <clears throat> apart from the good health reasons for doing it, it's the views of the city and surroundings totally. that yeah. you get yeah. uh, that are so unusual and give you just a whole different perspective on Galway, really. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. Anyway, Tom, listen uh, about ourselves then. What are you doing this week? Well, I, I am still out in the bay this week. In oh, fact. good, good, uh, good. And I am writing about steamboats and when they first came to Galway. Lovely. Because Lovely. as it happens, it's exactly 150 years ago this month that right. the first paddle steamer, the City of the Tribes, it was launched in England in South Shields. Uh, and it came and was registered for the Galway Bay Steamboat Company. Now, this it looks like a very small version of... <clears throat> the huge paddle boats we see yes. in films about the West and so on. Yeah. Uh, it was quite small. Um, it was uh, 
less than 100 feet long, and uh, but it had these big paddle wheels on either side. And <laughs> it must have been quite difficult in the on the sea with this. Uh, like the, there were a lot more paddle boats used on rivers and lakes than there were in the actual open sea. But her arrival, it caused an enormous amount of excitement in Galway <laughs> because this was regarded as a new era in shipping. This was the age of steam coming to Galway. And uh, huge excitement, really, and all kinds of uh, hopes and potential for the future. What uh, this boat did mostly was uh, tours to Ballyvaughan. Now, this kind of sounds daft, but <laughs> the, adver the advertisement for it said simply, the cheapest, shortest, and most enjoyable route for tourists and health seekers to the far-famed spa, Listoon Varna, and the sublime scenery of the coast of Clare is, per Dublin, per MGW, that's General Western Railways, Broadstone to Galway in about three and a half hours, from thence to the steamer City of the Tribes to Valley Vaughan, 10 miles, from thence via the Corkscrew Road per well-appointed cars which run in connection with the steamer to Listoon Varna in one hour. Season, excursions through the season to the wild and romantic Isles of Arran and the celebrated Cliffs of Moher. Now, when you think about that, the trip through the burn on the sidecar was probably the most exciting part of that. I would suggest holding on to the car was a good thing. But it must have also given you wonderful views of uh, the burn. Anyway, they had it timed perfectly so that when the steamer left Ballyvaughan on or before 2.30 p.m., it brought the passengers to Galway in time for the 4.15 train to Dublin. So the tourists, if they so wished, could make it back. Uh, return trips, they were the ones really where you got the big biggest value. What anyway, it, it, yeah. yeah. Great it was idea. a tugboat and uh, it was used a lot also to tow sailing vessels to and from Galway. And often, indeed, as it happens, going out, towing them out past the Iron Islands for some reason. Uh, and she was the very first ferry to provide an occasional service to the Iron Islands. <laughs> she was on the bay, on the sea, for about 30 years before she was replaced by the SS Doris. This right. was another steamboat. Uh, it was commissioned by the Congested Districts Board, and they primarily wanted, from the Doris, they wanted a, a regular service to the Iron Islands. And so they landed passengers and cargo at Kilronan Pier, and they set off for the other islands uh, three days a week as well. It was three shillings single to go to Arran on that boat, and four and six return. Not cheap. A yeah. A, no, not yeah. cheap at all. Exactly. I was going to say a lot of money. Uh, but, you know, they had, a, they had an interesting non-transferable two-day market ticket for two shillings. In other words, <clears throat> if you were bringing cattle in from the Iron Islands for a market or a fair, uh, you had a reduced rate as well. Anyway, this Doris boat was replaced by the Donangus, which many, many people I will remember. remember. Yes, I remember. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then the Nirvana arrived in uh, 1958, and uh, she was replaced eventually by the tug tender, the Galway Bay. Now, I found, I came across another photograph, <coughs> excuse me, of a steamboat associated with Galway, uh, and it's very, it's called the Cotter Nagalieva. Uh, it worked a lot during the 1930s, and uh, it, it became quite well known and famous in the war effort when, at the very beginning of the war, she was called out to the mouth of the bay in September 1939 to meet up with uh, a Norwegian ship called the Knut Nelson. Yes, we've this, talked about that. Yeah, we have indeed. Yeah. yeah. And this ship happily had been passing the Athenia, uh, which was sunk by a U-boat. But the, the Knut Nelson was very close and they picked up hundreds of passengers <coughs> who were brought into the docks indeed on um, this Cotter Nagalieva tender. Now, the photograph is very interesting because it's actually a picture of four people on the docks. Uh, <laughs> that's all. They may yeah. be going to or coming from yeah. this boat, but it's a particularly good shot of the boat itself, of the ship. And uh, so it's a very interesting one to add to the that's collection. Excellent. So that's it's steamboats yeah. for me today. I've also included the program that in 1875 remember now this is almost 150 <laughs> years ago yeah. for the month of july for the city of the tribes steamboat going to ballyvahan and you can see she was a very very busy boat yeah. uh, on on the days that are not listed on this she was going to the iron islands or she was being used as a tugboat so the People who owned this little ship got full value out of this ship without question. So it's the introduction of steamboats. There were, of course, steamboats on the river as well and on the Carib. The Lady Eglinton was uh, probably the most famous doing excursions up and down the lake. But, you know, they, it seems that these paddle steamers were far more suited to... <laughs> Uh, yeah. interior, you know, lakes, etc., rather than the I open know. seas. Yeah. Tom, Galway learned a terrible lesson some years before that, where it had great ambitions to have a steamer, a steam boat, a paddle boat, I should say, usually using sails as well uh, in trying to muscle in on the great transatlantic um, uh passageway that was creating a huge interest in the 1830s and 1840s, yeah. uh, bringing passengers to America. Liverpool had the monopoly and Galway Indeed. bravely, if you remember, tried to muscle their way into it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we both have written about it before. I remember there's a man, John Orwell, Oral Lever. That's uh, right who was the main man who captured Galway's imagination by saying, listen, we can muscle in on this great passenger bonanza that's happening. We can, you know, bring passengers from Galway to Halifax, then down to New York, you know, yeah. and he caused yeah. tremendous excitement in the town. Ah, yeah, and it all made sense. Remember, unfortunately, made sense. Yes, yes. Unfortunately, this country was ruled from London at the time, and Liverpool had a lot more influence. 
in London did. than Galway did. Sadly, as it turned out. And yeah. also, I think uh, they were a little bit too ambitious because the Atlantic is not a calm sea. And oh, no. they, they had absolutely no drills. They didn't have lifeboats on board. You know, they had really very little safety precautions. And there were tragedies and there were great losses. But yeah, it was indeed. a great idea. And I remember they were planned a harbour out in Barna and uh, or in Ferbo, sorry. And uh, there's deep water there. And, oh, they were going to bring passengers across from Dublin by train, bring them by train out to Ferbo and put them on these luxury boats and send them on their way. But yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Sadly, it didn't happen. But, but I love the idea of the paddle boat taking yes. over from the great sailboats. Uh, yeah. You know, sailboats which had been there for centuries. Suddenly they were, you know, outclassed uh, by the paddle boat. Steam was the thing. Um, it was. Yeah. You know, you didn't have to depend on the wind to get you in and out of a harbour. Just build up the furnaces, shovel in the coal harness the steam and off you go just wonderful yeah yeah it was a new era 150 years ago this month well tom it's great and i'm sure there were many people who looked at that paddle boat and said oh listen that the whole country is ruined we should have (laughs) stayed with sail (laughs) exactly with sail always be grudgers always always get it Progress is always marred by it. There's no question. Tom, that's absolutely lovely. I love that. And uh, you've got a really nice collection of pictures about the bay and the, and, uh, the harbour. And uh, it's such well, a, thank you. I hope an so. integral part of Galway because initially the wealth of Galway was built in the you know, 11th, 12th, 13th centuries by our traders that traded with Spain and came back into Galway. So the harbour was a key to Galway's development. You know, yeah, that's right. Still is, there are plans. There are plans to develop the harbour, but so I hope they succeed. So, what is in the diary? Right. Well, week? Tom, I'm still on about Sir William and Lady Wilde, and yeah. uh, well, I haven't met Lady Wilde yet, but I'm on about Sir William, or just William, as I'm calling him for the moment, because an amazing thing happened. Really, the appointment of William Wilde as assistant commissioner to the 1851 census, which covered the time of the Great Famine. Now, this was probably the most important census, Tom, ever conducted in Ireland. It was, after the famine, and yeah. He, he, this census uh, would challenge the various guesstimates of the number of its victims, and the appointment of William Wilde, a famous doctor, was initially seen as foolhardy. Now, Wilde's career up to this time had been in medicine, where after a brilliant apprenticeship at Dr. Stevens's hospital, he qualified as, as a surgeon at the age of only 22. But then he traveled extensively, Tom, to study eye and ear surgery in Vienna, Berlin, London, and was credited with several innovative techniques of, of ear and uh, eye surgery. Uh, he castigated hospital carelessness for their lack in in their lack of hygiene, which was a major cause of puerperal sepsis in newly delivered mothers, uh, 
He was alarmed, Tom, when following the death of a patient from cholera he'd been nursing in Galway, the bed linen was never changed. Now, of course, this <laughs> seems absolutely outrageous today. He advocated that all you needed was a simple hand wash with chlorinated lime water, and, which would greatly reduce the instance of hospital infections. And this, Tom, was some 20 years before Joseph Lister's seminal publication on antiseptics in surgery. So in 1841, this brilliant young doctor established his first clinic at St. Mark's Hospital, Dublin, dedicated to the treatment of diseases for both the eye and the ear, largely for poor patients. The hospital became the premier eye infirmary and the only hospital in these two islands, imagine, specializing in diseases of the ear. Patients came from all over Ireland, from the UK, and students came from Europe and North America. Yet Wiles medical qualifications, statistical knowledge, familiarity with the Irish language and folklore, along with publications on social issues, made him a surprising, but as it turned out, an inspired choice for this important census. Now, he was 36 years old at the time. He approached this Herculean task of conducting the 1851 census with his usual thoroughness and energy. And in just five years, he presented a detailed and completed report. He had sought, typical of a medical man, additional information than what was usually requested, such as the instances of impaired, impaired hearing and sight, as well as mental disabilities. These were unique at the time to include those on a census and were included. And this latter information obviously drew attention to the authorities of the help that was needed for these people. Also, at his insistence, the inhabitants of both the workhouses and the hospitals, which had been ignored in previous censuses, would be included. The main interest, however, was in the mortality during those terrible years. Now, there was wide variation of the numbers recorded. The Times of London, for example, estimated that during the Great Famine, there were about 20,000 deaths from famine, while the Irish Freeman's Journal put the figure at 4.75 million. Wilde reported a decline in the general population of 2.5 million, with deaths accounting to, for 1 million and the emigration accounting for much of the remainder. So these estimates, which were official, were accepted later by both the Times and the Freeman's Journal, and were until recent scholarship, Tom, accepted as the facts of that terrible, sad period. Yeah. Now, they have been, um, they have been, in fact, increased, the numbers of mortality have been increased because they didn't always include deaths from the fevers at the time, such as dysentery, cholera, uh, which uh, yeah. know, hadn't necessarily been included, but they have been in modern scholarship. But it yeah. was an amazing undertaking by a, a brilliant doctor and an amazing result, pretty accurate indeed. Don't forget, this was some years after the famine, he was doing the census, yeah. when people were still, you know, still exhausted and... Uh, oh, drained, yeah. yeah. Drained, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But however, now, in the 1850s and the early 1860s, William Wilde was now at the zenith of his fame. He was internationally recognised as a brilliant doctor. 
He had written successful books on surgery, antiquities and folklore. He married Jane Francesca Elgie, a niece of the writer Charles McTurin. She wrote for the Young Ireland Movement in the 1840s in The Nation newspaper under the pseudonym Speranza. They had three children, William, Oscar, of course, and Isola, who died sadly in her 10th year. In March 1857, as if he hadn't done enough, he undertook the enormous task of cataloguing, describing and illustrating some of the 10,000 antiquities in the Museum of the Royal Irish Academy. He successfully completed the task in four months, Tom, which had Whoa. a committee of experts had failed to do in four years. So just shows yeah. you, it's extraordinary. He was dedicated. He was dedicated. Extraordinary. And, and his ability to do these things. For this, he was presented with the Academy's highest award, the Cunningham Gold Medal. But other awards followed, including the Order of the Polar Star, presented by the King of Sweden for his medical innovations, and a knighthood for his work on the census. Now, this is where something happens to Wilde. Um, you know, that enormous workload, the extraordinary success must have borne on him mentally, because he does appear to act Strangely, despite his success, Tom, he displayed a reckless side to his character. He had several illegitimate children, and it was common knowledge he was a philanderer. Now, before his marriage, uh, Wilde had three children outside marriage. Two girls, Emily and Mary, who were given their father's name, and a boy, Henry Wilson, whom he later took on as a partner in his St. Mark's Hospital. Wilde privately acknowledged their paternity, his paternity and paid for the children's education. With the exception of his wife, it is likely that very few people knew of William's dalliances with the ladies before his marriage and probably knew less afterwards, even though rumours abounded in Dublin. And remember, Dublin was a small place and it beloved gossip and was yeah. eager always to gossip as much as it could, both in the yeah. pubs and in the salons. But anyway, the two girls lived with their uncle, Reverend Ralph Wilde, in Drumsnat in County Monaghan, away from the Dublin scene. And there the matter would have privately rested, were it not Tom for the most awful happenings on a snowy night in November 10, 1871. The two young women, you won't believe this. Emily, 24, and Mary, 22, were invited to a ball at Drummer Connor House. After most of the other guests had gone, their host, Mr. Reed, invited Mary for a last waltz. As they swirled around the room, Mary's highly inflammable crinoline dress touched the open fire and burst into flames. The remaining guests screamed in terror. Emily rushed to her sister and attempted to put out the fire. But incredibly, her dress caught fire too. It burst into flames. Reed tried to smother the spreading fire, even rushing them outside and covering them with snow. But little could be done. In agony, poor Mary died on November 19th and Emily on November 21 from very severe burns. Now, such an appalling tragedy would have been headlines in the Dublin newspapers for weeks. 
but they were strangely, the newspapers were strangely silent on the matter. Instead, the local paper, the Clogher Record, mentioned the tragedy, but referred to the two women as Miss M. Wiley and Miss L. Wiley. In the coroner's report, the surnames were corrected, were correct, I should say, but Emily's name was changed to Emma. It does appear that Wilde and his wife, Jane, used all their influence to block the truth coming out. Hearing the news in Drummer Connor, Wilde contacted the local constable, urging him to see that Emily was not told her sister had died, that was still alive at this stage, so as not to aggravate her fragile state. And later, of course, when the other sister died, Wilde convinced the constable not to hold an inquest, but merely to make an inquiry, which would be simpler. Now, he may have asked for the names to be changed as they are changed in the coroner's report uh, yeah. today. So Sir William was completely broken, however, by the event. He may have succeeded in keeping it from the public domain, but he could not uh, hide it from his own mental state. Oh. You couldn't bottle it up. You couldn't. It is said, Tom, that his moans and cries of despair could be heard by those passing his house at Merrion Square, his house which still stands today. No, it, it is a very sad occasion. That was a terrible thing. But it is likely, however, that his children, Willie, Oscar and Isola Emily, knew nothing of their half-brothers and sisters, of their half-brother, I should say, and sisters. The family secret was kept secret, but Oscar did not escape remorse for his beloved sister, Isola Emily, whom he described as dancing on a golden sunbeam about the house, who died suddenly aged 10 years. Now, Oscar was 12 years old at the time. He was devastated. Throughout his life, he visited her grave frequently. He kept a lock of her hair in a decorated envelope. It was found among his few possessions when he died a pauper in Paris, November 30th, 1900. And he wrote a poem, remember, 12 years of age, probably his first venture into the literary world. Very simple poem, it's only a few lines. I'll read it to you. Tread lightly, she is near under the snow. Speak gently, she can hear the daisies grow. All my life is buried here. So not a great poem, but obviously one mm. from a young boy's heart. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, Tom, I'm going to leave it there because poor, poor William, now Sir William, and his wife is Lady Jane. Uh, a worse, well, a, a public scandal came down the road in the form of one of his patients who accused him of rape, a very serious accusation. And of course, all Dublin became a buzz that this extraordinary famous man, one of the most famous doctors in the British Isles, if not the most famous doctor in the British Isles, was now being brought to court on this extraordinary case, which of course was denied. And I'll deal with that next week. And his building of his house in Kong, Mortura Lodge, which would be his great haven and escape from Indeed, the medical yeah. world and the statistical yeah. world and the legal world that was going to plague him from now on. So yeah. will we leave it there, Tom, and let's go out okay. and enjoy the sun. I'm dying to get out again. I might even <laughs> <listen>. <laughs> Okay.
All right, Tom. Yeah. You take care. Until Enjoy. next week. Yeah. All right, Ronnie. Yeah. Bye God now. bless. Bye bye.